The One Tough Mother Podcast. The One Tough Mother Show is real talk with special guests, including industry leaders, celebrities, and amazing women who've overcome adversities to work their way to the top and are willing to share their real life lessons. Remember, you don't have to be a mother to be one tough mother. It's all about you. Hi, welcome to the One Tough Mother Show. We are so unbelievably excited. Seth is so excited, I can hardly calm him down, right, Seth? I can't even talk right now. Yeah, I can't talk. Anyway, we have two of the most amazing guests, and I'm telling you what, you are going to be blown away by this show. Our guests are just the toughest mothers I know. But in the meantime, Seth, how's the baby? Baby's great. Is he a sleeper? Yeah, he's been a really great baby. You know, oh, that's awesome. My, my five-year-old was great. My daughter, as you know, to this day, still like, tough as nails. And she would never sit still, couldn't put her down, wouldn't take a bottle, wouldn't take a pacifier ever. We haven't gotten that phase yet, but he seems pretty agreeable so far. Oh, excellent. How's Melissa feeling? She's getting She's getting there. Good. Um, he got his first checkup uh, tomorrow, and uh, everything's good. Yeah, excellent. That's yeah. so fun. Oh, I do have a funny story. Um, he... Uh, uh, we took him to the urologist for his circumcision. Uh-huh. Well, uh, just a consultation, which is funny. Like, she had a son who had it done in the hospital right away, and he had a bloody diaper. <laughs> and then I had a brisk for my son, partly for my mom, partly f- when I did research. They said that was kind of the best way to go. Okay. And this, we just didn't feel like doing a brisk this time, just right. for the hassle of inviting people over and everything. And it's ridiculous. I'm Jewish, but, you know, it's whatever. Um, so the urologist is Jewish, and he's like, well, I did my son's brisses. I was like, well, I feel better now. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, it was really cool. And it just sounds like, you know, if I found this guy the first time, you know, he's just, yeah, he's, I'm very confident and comfortable. The guy's making funny jokes. He said, my son is, uh, you know, he looks good. <laughs> <laughs> I said, he gets that from his mom's side, not mine. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it was kind of funny. So, are you going to uh, have out. like a bris? No. Uh, uh, no, we're going to seven o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. You know what? I've never been to one. I was you're, hoping you're, I was coming. You were not on the short list. Uh, I think I was. Uh, I would have been at the window. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my fa- God. FaceTime, yeah. Yeah, yeah. FaceTime. I could do that for the your, your artist. I'll FaceTime you for that. Oh, that would be great. What would yeah. you do on the 4th? Uh, what did I do? Um, took my kids to the pool. Oh, that's the best. We, we went to my dad's house uh, the Friday before for fireworks. The golf course by, where Bai lives does great fireworks. And we uh-huh. just kind of sit there and it's really low key. And I was going to take him again last night, and I was tired. And I was like, no, you guys don't need to go see more fireworks. You're good. Yeah. One time, uh, uh, watch uh, the Watch the Macy's yeah. one on TV. It was awesome. Yeah, right. Did you see it? No. It was crazy. I know. Yeah. I heard it was really crazy. Yeah. Somebody was climbing the um, Statue of Liberty. Yeah, that was a friend of mine. Oh, yeah. how'd that work out for him? Uh, yeah, I got arrested. Yeah, I figured that was going <laughs> to happen. Yeah, so, um, again, I, I just hung. I hung at the house and planted a ton of stuff. I sweat. You know, I sweat a lot. <laughs> I'm sweating I sweat right now. A ton. Yeah. Boy, did I sweat! In fact, I'm losing weight, it's great. Yeah. Oh, you know, I didn't even notice that. I'm going to get on the scale. I probably <laughs> yeah. have lost weight because I was saying the other day, "Geez, these pants were tight before." Yeah, I've been sweating to death. It's been crazy, crazy thing. The whole planet's hot. I just saw some article. Yeah. Oh really? Yep. Is it gonna? It's gonna. We break, got like though. five or six weeks left. Yeah. It's gonna break. Yeah. It's gonna crack like an egg. Yeah. It's actually that's exactly <laughs> what it's gonna do. In the meantime, I'm gonna say this: we have. Two amazing guests, but in the interest of time, one is a phone interview in L.A., and the other one we have the pleasure of having in our studio. So when we come back, we're going to have our first interview, and I think you guys are going to be blown away. So hang out. We'll be right back. The One Tough Mother Podcast. Real talk with amazing women who have worked their way to the top and want to share their real life lessons with you. 
Our first guest, Gloria Aldred, is a notably this nation's most prominent woman's legal attorney, fighting for women's and civil rights in some of the most high-profile and often most controversial cases in America. From the celebrity trials of O.J. Simpson, Scott Peterson, Hunter Tylo, Tommy Lee, Tiger Woods, and Bill Cosby to the less-known struggles of people seeking rights denied to them due to their sex, sexual orientation, disability, age, or religion, Miss Allred legal victories and challenges inspires us to stand up and fight the good fight. From her vast experience in and out of the courtroom, Ms. Aldred's empowers, provokes change in home, at work, in the arena of life. It's with great pride and honor that we welcome to the One Tough Mother Show someone I'm a huge fan of, women's rights and civil rights attorney, Gloria Aldred. Yay! Welcome! Oh, thank you so much. I love the name of your show, and thank you so much for having me on, One Tough Mother. That's a that's a really cool title. Well, yeah, we, I loved it because it's all about the women. It's not about us or our show. It's all about women teaching real-life lessons to other women. So it's all about you, Gloria. This is all about you. Well, I'm all about, you know, fighting for women's rights. We always say that there would be no need for women's rights if there were no wrongs against women. Right. So given that there are continue to be very serious wrongs, then we need to be able to assert and vindicate our rights in courts of law, courts of public opinion, whenever and wherever we can, as long as it's legal and peaceful. Absolutely. And, you know, and sometimes I, not quite so peaceful. And not so quick. Right. In court. Yeah, exactly. I, I read that you've been fighting for victims' rights for over 40 years. I have to ask. I just have to. And actually, I'm, as you know, I'm from the New York area, the Northeast. My son works in Philly. How did a daughter from a working-class family in a, in a row house in Philadelphia evolve to one of the top or the top female and civil rights attorneys in the country? Well, I, I, first of all, I, 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 there's so much that goes into it. I would say that... You know, I've always known since my parents really were, you know, lower middle class to poor. I really, we, we were poor, but we didn't really think of it that way. Uh, my father was a door-to-door salesman, and my mother was a full-time homemaker, and we essentially only had enough money for each day for her to go and buy groceries, uh, not to buy it beyond that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just always realized that I really need work to work hard. Uh, in order to, you know, support myself and support uh, my daughter because I ended up being a single parent who didn't get child support, so I had to do that. And then, uh, ultimately, I was able to go to law school. Ultimately, uh, I met my partners there, uh, and we've been partners for 42 years, and they are very, very men of quality, which we always say in the women's movement, a man of quality is not threatened by a woman of equality. And I saw a need when I began to practice law uh, with my law firm, Rockland Goldberg, of women uh, being the victims of injustice. Given my own life experience as a woman, I realized then, as I started to hear the stories from many women, uh, that, in fact, what had happened to me in my own life experience was not an isolated instance, that there is a pattern of discrimination against women on account of their gender, gender violence, 
um, a lot of economic inequities solely because they're women, uh, you know, pregnancy discrimination, uh, sexual assault, child sexual abuse, rape, you name it, women are suffering as a result of it. And um, that I realized that I had an opportunity and a desire and I felt uh, a duty to help women to the extent that I was able to do so. We began to do that 42 years ago, and, you know, at, at, for, for 42 years, we have been the leading private law firm in the United States, uh, helping to win women's rights, and we're very, very proud of the courage of our clients, and we have won hundreds of millions of dollars for our victims, because we do think that it's important to make the wrongdoers accountable, and that the cost of the wrong should not be borne by the victim, it should be borne by the wrongdoer, whether that's a rich famous, powerful man, or whether that's a corporation, whether that's government, whatever it is, uh, we we're, we want to be able to fight for justice, and that's what we do along with our courageous clients. It's amazing, and Gloria, especially because 20, 30, 40 years ago, the landscape of the, your chosen career was male-dominated, and I'm telling you right now, I have no idea of how you overcame such challenges, because you, there's had to have been times, maybe times that you had to step up and step out, and it had to have been tough. It has to have been. Well, I do hope that everyone uh, will watch the documentary about my battle for women's rights and and, and my wonderful clients who, who have, you know, we've worked for them and supported them, represented them, and it's uh, now streaming on Netflix. It's called Seeing All Red. And we uh, premiered it, that is, Netflix did, at the Sundance Film Festival uh, earlier this year. And I feel very, very blessed and fortunate that it's received on Rotten Tomatoes 100% positive reviews. <laughs> Great. A fresh tomatoes. So, uh, you know, from wonderful publications all over the country and reviewers. And so we feel very, very fortunate about that making the 10 best, you know, film streaming now uh, on many sites. And, you know, I hope everybody will have an opportunity to see it because I think seeing it, you will not, not only understand me, but you will understand victims because I always say my goal is to take people who come into me as victims and help them to evolve and become transformed to become survivors and then for many of them, they will evolve even more and become fighters for change. Right. So victims to survivors to fighters for change, that's my goal. And it's empowerment and empowering women, empowering minorities, gay, lesbian, transgender, the, and, and racial minorities. These are my goals. And once individuals become empowered, they will never be the same again, and they will be role models and inspirations for not only themselves, but in addition for their family members, in their workplace, and in their community. A absolutely. And, and, you know, Gloria, I mean, until I really, really, I've, I've followed you for years, and then I spent a lot of time reading different articles that you've done. And until the, the time, one of the things that really got me, you've been very open and, and raw and honest about your, your rape and your pregnancy and the horrific abortion that you had to have. And how you nearly died. And you said something in an interview that just really hit home with me. 
because I never really thought of it like this, but you said that making abortion illegal will not stop abortion. Elaborate on that for me. That's absolutely true, and this is a very key issue, especially now when uh, the president has an opportunity and will nominate uh, a, a justice to the vacancy created by the retirement of Justice Kennedy to the United States Supreme Court. And we are very, very concerned, I am, that it's going to be a justice who, uh, if confirmed by the United States Senate Judiciary Committee, will in fact overturn Roe v. Wade, that 1973 United States Supreme Court decision, which found that a woman has a liberty interest uh, under the 14th Amendment to be able to choose legal, safe, affordable, available abortion, essentially, at the early, at least in the early stage of a pregnancy before the fetus is viable. The alternative, and, and of course it was not uh, uh, available except without jumping through lots of hoops, when I had to have an abortion prior to 1973. So I know that I and many, many other women had to have abortions that were not provided by health care providers, licensed health care providers, because it would be illegal for them to have provided it. And, however, it was not illegal for a woman to have it. As a result, people like me went to back alley uh, abortionists, basically butchers, um, and they uh, performed the abortion. And then they left you. I mean, and so left you perhaps, you know, with an infection, hemorrhaging, as I did. And then that's the only time you could get care in the hospital if you were hemorrhaging, bleeding to death, uh, from an abortion that some unlicensed health care provider provided. And then many women died or were maimed by illegal abortions. Fortunately, I lived, even though I had a 106-degree fever. Unbelievable. Had to be packed in ice at the hospital. But... We don't want anyone else's daughters or granddaughters or sisters or aunts or mothers to ever have to go through that horrendous experience. It's very hard to get an abortion in this country. In many states now, even though it's legal, there's no one to perform it because doctors who provided abortions have been assassinated, clinics have been firebombed, um, and uh, workers have often been threatened. So it, it's really hard, and also there are people in state legislatures continuing to put restrictions on abortion clinics to make them go out of business, which many have. So it's become very burdensome, and it, the people who are hurt are poor women, young women, old, uh, rural women who don't even have the bus fare to go to another state to get an abortion. And so if this is mandatory pregnancy, mandatory motherhood, compulsory pregnancy, uh, women are being forced to either get an illegal abortion or being forced to, uh, you know, carry pregnancies to term that they don't want to carry because for economic reasons they can't support them or whatever reason they have, um, and it's no, none of our business to second-guess their reason. It's going to be worse under if Roe v. Wade is overturned. That's why everybody has to... Uh, focus on this. This is a life and death decision that is going to be made by 
the next justice of the United States Supreme Court. And you know what, Gloria, we're not talking about birth control here. We're not talking about abortion to be used as birth control. We're talking about something far greater than that. And the, the fact that there are women out there that, you're, you, that can die or women that will, will seek it out like you did and will die. Exactly. And the idea that some people think that, you know, a fertilized egg should have more rights than an adult woman is just absolutely outrageous. Um, and, you know, the, uh, these are people, there's no reason that someone sitting on the United States Supreme Court or someone, some stranger, a member of Congress or the United States Senate or even a member of a state legislature who's never met the woman who has to make this difficult decision about whether to take her pregnancy to term or have an abortion. There's no reason that these other people, especially these men, but even any other woman, should be able to make that decision for that woman. She has the right to make it for herself, not have somebody else's uh, religious agenda imposed on her or whatever they feel about fertilized eggs. That's not their business to make that decision she should have a liberty interest. We're entitled to life, liberty, uh, and the pursuit of happiness. And part of the liberty interest, the United States Supreme Court has said, is for a woman to have the liberty to make that decision. Right. You know, it, it, I've read so many great interviews that you've done, and I read Alex Clark's titled Who's Afraid of Gloria Aldred? And I had to laugh because he puts Who's Afraid of Gloria Aldred? And then he goes on to laundry list Bill Cosby, Donald Trump, Eddie Murphy, Tiger Woods, Michael Jackson, saying that the list of men Gloria Aldred has taken to court reads like the who's who of the great or the not so great. So I haven't seen it. Hopefully you'll send it to me. I will send you that. I loved that entire article. The guy was just awesome. I guess you guys were having clam chowder out on the other coast, out where you're at. And um, it was an amazing, he was an amazing, um, it was an amazing interview. I really enjoyed reading it. So when you're there, when you're at the top, when you're like butting heads with the big, when, well, how do you feel? Like, are you ever fearful? Does it ever like get to you? Is the anxiety ever like, oh my God, I can't do it? Or are you just like, go, go, go? Well, fear, you know, being immersed in fear is, is, is paralyzing. It's, it's a weapon that is used to keep women down yes. and disabled from asserting their rights. So fear is a luxury I cannot afford. Knowing that it's a weapon, it's, you know, I'm not going to allow myself to do that. I am fearless. I I am prepared. I am going to speak truth to power. I am going to uh, help my clients to be able to assert, protect, and vindicate their rights and help them to find that they have more justice than they ever realized they had the strength and courage to win. And so that's what I'm all about. And no, I don't. I don't think I was born with the fear gene. My mother <laughs> never had it. My daughter, my granddaughter, my you know, they don't have it. Um, it, it because it, it, it's not. It's not something that's going to be helpful to my clients. Um, I mean, I think I am realistic, but I am never in fear. That's awesome to hear because want, that's what I, I want wanted to hear. I want the wrongdoers to be in fear of me, and if they are. They, they deserve it because they know that I know 
how they have hurt women and minorities. We're not going to stand for it. That I'm so I'm so grateful to hear that because we're not just talking women. We're talking gay rights. We're talking so many things that you're so immersed in, that you're so involved in. Because you run several cases at one time, which just blows my mind. I can't remember many, laundry lines. Many, lines. many. Yeah. I have a law firm. We have a dozen attorneys. Um, we have an office in Los Angeles. We also have an office in New York. Um, I'm also licensed in Washington, D.C., as well as those other two states, and I also have cases in many other states as well. Wow, that's amazing. So in your opinion, Gloria, in your, in your honest opinion, where is women's rights headed right now? Where are we going? What are we going to be showing? How are we going to teach our daughters, our granddaughters, our great-granddaughters, our cousins, our sisters, our whatever? How are we going to show well, them? Well, people call this the Me Too age women have broken the silence about gender violence and not only on the internet but also in courts of law and also we're doing as i say many many confidential settlements but i also think that there is a second phase of the me too and the second phase is pay equity for example i represent numerous uh nfl cheerleaders former cheerleaders who only get seven dollars and 25 cents an hour that's all they got when they were working for the houston texans as cheerleaders and, uh, and even then, we allege in a lawsuit that they weren't paid for all of the hours that they worked, even at that paltry uh, minimum wage. Um, so, you know, women often, when they are working in a occupation that's totally occupied by women, like women cheerleaders, uh, they tend to be underpaid because women are not considered a value or they're easily exploited. Right. And we allege in this lawsuit that they are being exploited on account of their gender and also that some, some of them have been subjected to a hostile working environment, hostile because of sexual harassment. Right. So I say the second phase of the Me Too is women speaking out and wanting to economically be treated in a way that is equal to men, not that these cheerleaders should be paid what football players are paid, but they should be paid consistent with the value they bring to the brand and they bring uh, an income stream, uh, profit to the brand, uh, and revenue to the brand, and they're not being compensated fairly, uh, we allege, for the value that they bring to the brand. So uh, that's what I see. But I see this as the age of empowerment of women, but we still have to fight for our rights because nothing changes unless we are able to fight for our rights. No one ever gives us our rights. We always have to fight to win them. That's so true. We have to fight to win the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution. It took us 72 years to win the right to vote. It's taken us 95 years. We still do not have the addition of the Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution. We need one more state, and then we need changes, uh, you know, in, in uh, so to eliminate the, re the deadline that was put on there by Congress to pass the ERA. So we still have a long way to go. It, it's, a, it's amazing. And, you know, I know that you're, you've taken on some things or are taking on same things with the military as well, which is my sweet spot because that's kind of my background of where I've come from my family's military. So um, I, I really appreciate everything that you do and in, in all the people that you do it for and do it with. People get frightened. They're frightened that they don't have the rights. They're frightened that they don't have the money. They're frightened that, that there's something out there that's going to come after them that's much larger than they are. And the fact that you remove that fear and give people a place to come is just all-inspiring as far as I'm concerned. Thank you so much. 
Well, I'm going to, you know, regardless of whether you ever wear it, I'm sending you a One Tough Mother t-shirt <laughs> because you are one tough mother. I can't thank you enough for this wonderful interview and for being a guest on our show. Well, it's been a pleasure. Keep up the great work. It's so important. And we want to highlight women who are strong, who are tough, who, you know, who, who are confident and who are not going to put up with injustice because we can win change. We can be what Gandhi said. We can be the change we wish to see in the world. That's what we need to do. Thank you, Gloria. Have a wonderful day. Great. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The One Tough Mother Podcast. Real talk with amazing women who have worked their way to the top and want to share their real life lessons with you. We are back and we're honored to have this beautiful woman in our studio today. Sherry Botwin is a licensed clinical social worker, an author, and a keynote speaker for over 20 years and has provided individual group and family therapy specializing in treatment of trauma, abuse, eating disorders, anxiety, and depression. Sherry delivers commentary on networks such as NBC, ABC, CBS, CTV, which is in Canada, MSNBC, just to name a few. She's pretty hot, I'm telling you. During the Cosby trial, Sherry appeared on CBS National News, CNN, ABC News, and NPR, offering commentary during the trial. It's with great pleasure that we welcome, and I'm not going to say I don't know her because she's a very dear friend of both Seth and I, our dear friend, the amazing Sherry Botwin. Yay! Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for the long drive in. You drove in from Philly. It was so much fun. Really? Oh, yeah. I was jamming to all the 97.1 has all these dance music songs. I was picturing my little seven-year-old doing the Fortnite dances the whole drive up and... (laughs) Cracking up and having fun. Oh, that I'm a, I'm a road trip type of gal, too. I, I like a good old-fashioned road trip. I like to get in. But, um, Sherry, I have to – all these media outlets, all these news nation, or networks calling you and asking you about the Cosme trials. Tell us, how did you get involved in all of this? So before the first trial, it was the very end of 2015 – Dateline and 2020 had about 13 different women come on air and talk about their their assault. I still remember sitting at my on my sofa thinking, "Oh my gosh, I need to do something." All of these women are telling these powerful stories. There are so many common themes. I'm sitting on my sofa, I'm listening to them, I'm thinking about my patients, I'm thinking about my own story. And went to my computer the second the show ended, started writing, just started writing, not even knowing where this was going to go. Sent it to the Philadelphia Inquirer. And again, this was, maybe this was very early 2016. The piece got published within five hours of it going on the internet. I heard from three of the Cosby women that were on the show. I heard from the lawyers for the Constan family. I heard from Kevin Steele, the district attorney. And from there, I just started becoming friends with so many of the Cosby women. There were also women that reached out to me after reading the article that hadn't even come forward yet about their alleged assault with Cosby. So this was early 2016. I developed connections with many of these women. I started to get to know them. We talked a little bit about what their experience was like after coming forward. And then when I hear the trial is going to be in Norristown, I think, I'm going to be there. I need to be there. I want to be there. 
and just decided to go and be with the women and be with the Constan family and root Kevin on and his team on. And it's been now almost three years that I've known several of these women. In fact, on the way up here, I was messaging with some of them, talking with some of them, expressing my own emotions about coming on your show today, thinking about them and sending all these shout outs. So I feel like in some ways this horrible story that we're hearing about all these women getting hurt, the wonderful thing about it for me, for them, and for so many people is we all have each other. We all connect. Right. And that's what's so powerful about you, Sherry. What's so powerful about you and what's so wonderful about you is you speak openly and rawly and honestly about your own abuse and your own survivorship. And I think when people are authentic and real and true to who they are, I think that other people gravitate towards that and they feel comfort in that and they feel solace in that and they feel that they can speak their heart because as you know, we just we we just spoke to Gloria and fear is such a mind game. Like once you fear coming out, once you fear that you're going to be accused or or made fun of or not believed, they don't want to do it. And how do you get past that, Sherry? How does one get past that? I'm still trying to figure that out because I know for myself and so many patients, even just saying in a therapist's office, this is something that happened to me, that in and of itself is such a big fear for so many people. I know for myself, a lot of what makes me break free from the fear is the abuse that I lived with and that I lived with after it ended. It was ruining my life. I had so many dreams and aspirations, and I was stuck. I can remember in my first apartment where I lived after I left my abusive home, I would sit on my on my chair and just freeze. I would go to work during the day. I would come home, and I would just sit in this in this chair and be totally paralyzed. And there was a part of me that kept saying, you have to do something. You can't keep living like this. You need to speak And again, I think the fear of speaking is worse than the actual abuse. I think it's worse. I think so, too, because the number one fear people as adults have is public speaking. So to speak up about something that is horrific or, you know, you feel like you've had a part in or you might have been responsible for or that you're afraid that somebody's going to come after you, attack you about has to be just horrible. How do you what do you tell women when they come to you? You know, I. I don't even know if it's what I tell them. I try to be with them. And this is men and women. I see all different types of people. I had somebody come into my office, an older male in his late 50s. He hadn't told anybody about his abuse until he met me when he was 58. And when he first started telling me about it, I'm thinking there's really not much I can say right now except to just show him through my expression, my body language, I feel for you, you're so brave, you have so much courage, what you're doing is, it's gonna save your life. So what I do when I'm talking with people is I think these thoughts, I try to put it out there. I don't necessarily say that in the beginning because I know for myself, when I first started speaking, if somebody said to me, oh, you're so brave, you have so much courage, it made me feel bad. Okay. It made me feel Like, why are they saying this? I don't feel that way because as somebody comes forward, they don't necessarily feel a sense of relief and freedom. They feel like, oh, my God, what I just said, 
that's going to get me in trouble or that's going to get the person in trouble and all these different thoughts, they're still there. So I think the process of breaking free from fear after speaking, again, in some ways is harder than the actual living through the abuse. I have defense mechanisms I use when I'm being abused. I go up in the sky and I pretend that I'm in another place. But when I sit and look at somebody, when I sat and looked at my therapist and told her what happened to me, I was terrified. What is she going to think of me? What if the person that that raped me hears what I'm saying? I would look up in my bedroom every night and look to see if he was coming in. I was afraid he was going to come and get me. Right, right, right. And that's so true. It's the fear of what we don't know is going to happen, the unknown. And because we hear so many horrific, horrible stories about people being, oh, accused or not believed or, well, you deserved it or this or that. It, it makes it horrible. And when you're talking at the level that you and Gloria play at right now with the Cosby trials, with Trump, with all the men that ha- have come out, I mean, every stinking day there's someone new in the news that's that's getting nailed for this kind of thing. People that have been like ultimately respected and looked up to Matt Lauer. I mean, it's just horrific. And when you play at that level and trying to come out against people like that, it's got to be just horrible. I mean, you, you've you got to really believe in who you are and what you're doing and have something solid behind you to do it. Or you just go to self-medication, right? Exactly. I remember after I first started talking about the Cosby story, I was actually afraid. Now, I'm not even talking about my own abuser. I'm talking on behalf of the accusers. And as I'm talking on behalf of them, I feel like I'm also talking on behalf of my patients and a little bit on behalf of myself. But I can remember after going on air sometimes, I would actually be a little bit afraid to get in my car thinking, what if somebody's following me? Or what if one of his lawyers or what if Andrew Wyatt or because the more you put yourself out there, the more people start to figure out who you are. So that was something else that I had to deal with. And then I thought, if I'm afraid to get in my car right now, imagine how Andrea Constant feels. Imagine how Janice Baker feels. I'm thinking of all these women. And I've had several conversations with them. And they have been put through the ringer. When they first came out, even after Dateline in 2020 aired, there were family members that were telling them, why are you doing this? You shouldn't be doing this. There were people attacking them on social media, calling, you know, slut shaming and all of this stuff. And I'm thinking, I'm just getting out there and talking on air. I'm not even really talking about myself. So it helps me really appreciate and understand the importance of what all of these people are doing. The people who spoke up against Trump and spoke up against Matt Lauer. That's not easy for them. There's so much risk. And if we were to sit in this room and talk with them, I can pretty much guarantee you that all of them lost somebody in their personal life as a result of having spoken. Absolutely. 100%. You know what, Sherry, that's so true. Because well, here's what happens. is people that don't have that bravery, don't have that mindset. People that don't have that moral compass of I'm going to do this regardless of how it turns for me. They're afraid. They're afraid to be attached to you. They're afraid of what you're doing. And people peel off like the layers of an onion. They'll peel off and move away, move away, move away from what you're doing. And I'm sure you see that in your practice correct? I see it every day. This is the way I understand it. 
when somebody walks away from me or my patient or one of the Cosby women or a Matt Lauer accuser, they're walking away because they don't want to know. They don't want to have to think that someone that they had respect for, that they were in a relationship with. I know that I struggle with this more in my personal recovery, the idea of those that left my life as a result of me having spoken. That is, for me, is more agonizing. And when I sit in my office, I was talking to an 18-year-old a couple of months ago. She so courageously, finally, after three years of seeing me in therapy and battling depression and battling eating disorders, decided I'm going to tell my parents what my uncle did to me. I'm going to tell them. She's getting ready to go off to college. She wants to free herself of this secret. She tells them. She comes into my office maybe three weeks later, hysterically crying. Why can't they just believe me? Why can't they accept what I'm telling them? Why can't they be there for me? So now our sessions are not about what the uncle did. Now our sessions are about how do you live with the limitations of your own family and their inability to be there for their daughter. Right. right. We've had some experience like that too. I don't want to get into it uh, personal, but it's an inconvenience for people. That's the problem. They don't. They don't want to. You think that? Absolutely. I don't. I can't stop uh, being married to this person, or I can't. He's still my brother, or he's still this. They don't want to be inconvenienced, so they don't want to believe it because it messes up their lives. Oh, right. That's that's kind of what I'm seeing and feeling. I think that a lot of times, what I notice with people who are connected with the abusers, they often have a dependency on the abuser, a need. When I think of. Camille Cosby, I think, what is she doing? Why is she standing by her husband? This is what I say to myself. She doesn't have a sense of self. She is not a whole person. She knows what he did. She was in the house when he committed some of those crimes. My family members knew what was happening to me. I know this patient's parents, they had to know that their daughter was being molested because it was happening in her bathroom. You don't come out normal after that. When you're traumatized, you don't, you're not the same. Gianna Constant would talk about how after Cosby assaulted Andrea, she said this on the stand, something was not right with my daughter. Something was different. People know. She's one of the only people that I feel like I know in this world, and this is part of why I love her so much, that she doesn't she doesn't care about the inconvenience. She says, somebody mess with my daughter. I'm going to stick up for her. I'm going to stand by her. I'm going to do whatever I need to, including get on the stand twice, which is so not her thing and not Andrea's thing. And that is just not – that's not the norm. Most people horrible. can't do it. Can't and you know it. what? There's always that – and I hate to say it, and I know it's going to, but, oh, what are people going to think of our family? What are people going to oh, think? Yeah. The shame. The shame. Oh, my God. Don't, 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 don't talk about that. What will people think of us? Be more ashamed if they find out and you kept it and didn't do anything to me, in my, in my view. Right, right, right. And she is an extremely brave woman because, you know, first of all, when, when someone comes, say your daughter comes to you and says, Mom, you know, whoever is abusing me. What are the steps? Like, you really just have to, you really, there's, you've got to listen with all your heart and all your mind, correct? You definitely do. And I think the one advantage of being a survivor for myself and so many people that I work with who become parents is we can tolerate pretty much anything. When you've been through horrible things, 
you don't ever want to think that your kid is going to go through anything like that. But at the same time, if God forbid anything like this happened to my kid, I would be able to manage it. Most people, people who don't have this in their experience, it's really difficult for them to hear somebody hurt my child or somebody somebody hurt my sister or somebody hurt my best friend. And I think if if somebody came to me and said, I don't know what to do. My best friend just told me she was raped by her father. You know what I would say? You don't need to do anything. Just be. Just be there. And you know what? You don't need to understand. You don't need to try to make him or her feel better. Just in any way that you can show that person that you're there for them. You believe them. You hear them that you really don't understand. Because if people say to me, I know, I understand, la, 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 I think, you no, you don't. Don't say you understand. I don't understand fully what, what, what Andrea Constant feels. And we're both, we're both rape victims. But I understand to an extent, most people who haven't been through this, they don't understand. And that is okay. Right. That is okay. Because you're right. How can you possibly wrap your head around it if you haven't been through it? So... What, when you're talking to young girls and they say, I can't tell, I can't tell, like you're the person you have in your clinic, I can't tell. How do you, how do you get them to open up? You know what, with this one person that I'm talking about, I don't know how it happened. I had no idea that she was keeping that secret. She had told me when we first started therapy that she was, she was bullied by a couple of kids in the eighth grade. She was in eighth grade. They would corner her in the bathroom. So we kind of talked about that for a year. And I did notice her level of depression, the sense of hopelessness that she felt. I knew something. I remember thinking, why is she in so much pain? And sometimes if I don't know somebody's holding a secret, then I may think, well, maybe it's part of the genetic background. Both sides have bipolar, have depression, have anxiety. And then one day, she came in and she said, I, I have to tell you something. I was shocked. I was, I, I had no idea. And again, we had been in therapy for, it was probably over a year before she actually spoke. A lot of times when I'm working with patients, I will get like a feeling like, I feel like something happened to this person. And how do I feel that? Or how do I know that? I, I guess I can just feel the shame in the room. I can feel the guilt and the body hatred and the hopelessness. And I tap into that because when I was growing up, I did not let myself know that I was abused. I woke up in the morning, like I woke up this morning, I put my makeup on, I did my hair, and I would have all these tears in my eyes and I'd be full of pain. But I would just go to school and say, you're fine, nothing happened, just go to school. So it's like one of those things where I think when I sit with people and they're not speaking, I can almost on some level just feel something's not right. And I never will say to people, have you ever been abused? Or I don't do that. Because if somebody asked me that, I would say, no, why are you asking me that? So I make the space, I create the safety so that if and when the person is ready, they'll tell me. And usually over time, they will speak, but it usually is not in the beginning. So it's building a level of trust. Building a level Absolutely. of trust and a common ground of, of respect and trust. That's that's amazing to hear because I always think, you know, I wonder about that. Like, there's got to be so many, just in the recent years of all this abuse and all this stuff going on, there's got to be so, so, so many women that haven't even spoken up. 
you know, I talk to people about Me Too and and I comment on it often. And I've been talking a lot about the Cosby story. And one of the things I would say is we still we have such a long way to go. We're still not hearing from the kids, the the people in families who are being abused. I feel like Me Too is more about men in power and women coming out against them. But I think that that's only the first layer. From what I know about some of the Cosby women and the Matt Lauer women and the Trump women is they all have backstories. They all have a story before that story. And one of the things that I think you you understand is that when you grow up in an abusive environment, you think that's what the environment is supposed to be like. So you get into your 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 early mid 20s and you attract to similar types of personalities. You continue to allow yourself to be in relationships where you're disrespected and devalued because you don't know any different. Right. That's your common. And I said that to someone once in in an interview that I did. Someone was interviewing me. And I said, when you grow up in abusive relationships, when you grow up in a relationship that is not the norm, and I say that, that is your normal. That is your normal. Kids that have been abused for years, that is their normal. And they don't understand the other uh, other side of the coin. So you just can't t- rip them out of there and say, okay, that what well, that was wrong. And because that's been their whole life. And it's their family usually. Right. So how can you say to somebody, your family, they don't treat you like family. One of the things you have to work on when you're going through recovery, most people can't do this until they're grownups. Um, adult survivors who were abused as kids, you have to work on accepting just because that was your mom and dad doesn't mean that they actually really loved you the way you deserve to be loved. Right. To actually come to a place of acceptance, I can't tell you how many times I would say to my therapist, how could my mom do that to me? How does a mom do that? I would say over and over, I don't understand. And now that I am a mom, I don't, I don't understand at all. Part of me understands because I can step back and go, well, there's pathology there, there's denial there, but to actually really get to a place of acceptance and understanding about something that really makes no sense is it's it's really very difficult. That's a very powerful statement that you may never, never understand what goes on to you or goes on in your life because um I, it's just impossible to wrap your head around it sometimes, I, I guess. I feel like the only cho- choice you have when you're in that situation is to... Like you, you're a mother now too, is to kind of break the cycle and and just do it, try to do things the right way and focus on that. Because if you keep living in that past, you'll you'll like you said, you'll be a prisoner, you'll be paralyzed. You know what I do, and I think this is something I try to help my patients with. I, we talk about how the past becomes the present. We don't want that. We want to be able to say the past is in the past. Today is different. So I'm constantly, as a parent and even as a therapist, I'm. I'm in the past on the left side, in the present on the right side, and I let myself be in both places at the same time. I'll watch my little guy, Andrew, freely getting dressed or freely dancing down the halls of his school and think, that's the way you a kid is supposed to feel, safe, free. And then I'll have flashbacks of little Sherry being afraid to go to the bathroom, hiding behind lockers because the kids were bullying me and thinking, that was because of what was happening to you. So you're looking at the contrast and when I can watch kids, and not even just my own kid, anybody, or when I can watch my patients, parent. I have so many patients now who have become parents who are also abuse survivors. 
they come in and they tell me these stories about their kids and it's all about love and safety and freedom and and I try really hard in therapy to help patients recognize the importance of that, that look at what you're doing. You're able to take something from your history and not repeat it. Right. You, you are breaking the cycle because I think, myself included, sometimes I don't really acknowledge that. I'll do the, oh, I should be doing this more and I shouldn't have done that. But then I keep pulling myself back and saying, but Sherry, the fact that you can do what you're doing, you can have flashbacks of being sexually abused and know that you can picture being an abuser, but you don't act on that. You look at your kid and you think that was your abuser. I'm not internalizing that. I'm not re- I'm not going to repeat that. Right. I look at his beautiful, little, adorable face and I think, wh- why would he deserve to go through that? So I think it's really important for anybody that's been through abuse. If you're able to form relationships that are safe and happy and loving and genuine, in some ways you already won. I think that about so many of the Cosby women. I think of all of the good things that they're doing and all of the relationships that they're forming and thinking they could have really gotten messed up after what happened to them. But a lot of them are taking what happened to them and they're empowering themselves. Right. Like they want to teach their kids. We want to teach our little boys how to like be respectful of women. Right. And I also want to teach my little boy how to not take crap from other people, including women in power. Right. Because it works both ways. Absolutely, 100%. And that's a wonderful statement. It does work both ways. And I just can't tell you how honored we are that you and Gloria both were on the show because this is a very powerful show. We want everyone to understand that you can speak up and speak out. There are there are resources. It's terrifying. I know. I can't even imagine the magnitude of fear that people feel or the guilt or the shame. But please, if there's any way possible that you can contact Sherry or Gloria or one of many, many people in this country that help people with abuse or any kind of, you know, sexual or trauma, please contact them because you can speak up. You can speak out. You don't have to turn to drugs. You don't have to turn to alcohol. You don't have to medicate yourself to get to to get to a place where you love yourself because that's what it's really all about, isn't it? It's all about that. And I feel like there are so many people out there that are suffering in silence. And I think to myself, you could spend 25 years not eating so that you don't have to feel the shame or the fear But then you have to think about, in some ways, then you're letting your abuser win. You're letting your history become your entire life. And I feel very hopeful about the fact that there are different ways you can free yourself from abuse. And there's different ways you can speak. You don't have to go see a Sherry Botwin. You could could decide you're going to tell your friend. You could go to Rain's website and start connecting with other survivors. You could do some reading. You could listen to your podcast and think, you know what? I'm inspired by what they're saying. I think I'm going to do something about what happened to me. There's no right or wi- there's no right or wrong way to break your silence. And what I would say to people is, if you feel like you want to tell somebody, tell somebody. Write it down. Leave a voicemail. Call a therapist. Tell your best friend. Once you begin speaking, it just sort of will unfold from there. And in terms of all the eating disorders and drug addictions and all that stuff, you can't stop having an addiction. You won't be able to break free from your eating disorder if you won't allow yourself to know all of who you are. It's impossible because the the eating disorder, the drugs, the alcohol, they become the mask. They become the silencer. 
they become your best friend and sort of your enabler and staying silent. So you have to be willing to let that go and say, life could be so much better if I actually had people I could trust. Right. And and it is about bravery. It's all about everything, feeling confident and finding a person that you can trust. And hope. And hope. Hope Absolutely. for your future. Yep. Dreams. It's all there. You can do it if you really, really, really try. And we're here to help you if you need it. Sherry, where can they find you? Where can they contact you? So they can contact me on my email, and I'll spell it. It's S-H-A-R-I-L-C-S-W at Comcast.net. People can also visit my website, www.shariboatwin.com. Please feel free to reach out. I am happy to offer resources, talk to you, whatever it is that you need. I'm here. Excellent. And what do you have coming up? You have something special coming up. I wanted to hear about this. I'm so excited. I'm counting down just like I did for this. Um, September 15th, I will be a a featured speaker at the Empowered Women. It's going to be at the Alvin Alvin Ailey City Theater. And Noelle Anderson, who we were in an article last year for the Associated Press. She owns a dance company, Ruben Rouge. All of her pieces are dedicated to survivors of cancer, abuse. So this is going to be a big event where I'll be speaking her dance company will be, will be performing, and they, they're going to have a whole bunch of other dance companies, and it's going to be an evening really to dedicate to, a, to thrivers, to the media for all their attention, to the arts. I cannot wait. So those tickets will go on sale July 30th, and people can, can either come to my website to look for the link, or you can go to, and I'm going to spell it, you can go to R-U-B-A-N-S-R-O-U-G-E-S-D-A-N-C-E.com and find the link there to get tickets. That's excellent. I'm so proud of you. You've done such, you're you're just an amazing, amazing person. So are you guys. Oh, thanks. Seth, I think we're going to wrap it up today. What do you think? I think it's a good idea. I think it's been a great show and I think that uh, we're going to just say thank you to Gloria Aldred. I'm beyond honored that you were on our show today and and that you spoke and that you're going to get your one tough mother t-shirt i just hope you put it on mm. <laughs> and to uh sherry botwin our dear dear friend thank you for coming in from philly and being part of this show you're an amazing woman i look forward to seeing you just grow and flourish you're going to do so many crazy crazy things and today's mother says is be brave enough to start a conversation that matters okay everybody Be brave enough to start a conversation that matters. We love you all. We can't wait to talk to you next week. Have a great week.